Welcome to The Excellent Fiduciary, a podcast from Roland Chris, where we explore what it takes to meet and exceed the demands of managing an employee benefit plan in today's complex market. From regulatory developments to fiduciary news and practical tips, tune in to The Excellent Fiduciary for your step-by-step guide in achieving compliance and confidence in a new fiduciary era. Now let's begin today's show with an introduction from our Roland Chris host. An investment policy statement, or IPS, is a written declaration intended to provide a defined benefit or a defined contribution plan's investment fiduciaries with a framework for decision-making regarding various types or categories of investments. Typically, an IPS outlines the party's roles in the plan investment process and details their investment responsibilities. Although a retirement plan qualified under the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, or ERISA, isn't required to have an IPS, it's generally considered a best practice to have one. Hi, I'm Ron Hagen. I am chairman of the Risk Standards Committee at Roland Chris, and it's my pleasure to host this episode of the Excellent Fiduciary Podcast. Well, since most plans maintain an IPS, Not having one can be seen as, let's call it, outside the lines and may subject the plan's fiduciaries uh, to greater scrutiny. It's not hard to imagine, for example, a plaintiff's law firm arguing that a plan's failure to have an IPS is the de facto evidence of a fiduciary breach. In fact, a new approach used by attorneys representing disgruntled participants in an ERISA retirement plan shines a spotlight on the design of an IPS. It's not uncommon for employee benefit plan fiduciaries to adopt an IPS in in template form that's provided by their plan's record keeper or an investment consultant. Well, as this recent lawsuit demonstrates, though, a poorly constructed IPS or one that's ignored can be dangerous. And here's an outline of the story. The lawsuit against the Rollins Incorporated 401k savings plans fiduciaries claims that improper monitoring of the plan's investments was responsible for five damaging outcomes. The first of those, the the, the claim uh, alleges, is that the fiduciaries allowed Prudential, the plan's record keeper, and other conflicted service providers to improperly influence investment fund selection and retention decisions. Secondly, the investment committee was claimed uh, in the lawsuit to have adopted a monitoring process that relied upon subjective opinions of conflicted fiduciaries and vendors to determine whether to remove a fund. The third allegation centers around the fiduciary's apparent retention for years of plan investment options that had unreasonable expenses and poor performance relative to other investment options that were readily available to the plan. Those options included low-cost passively managed funds and the least expensive share classes of actively managed funds with a long-standing history of superior performance. The fourth allegation claims that the plan included investment funds with expense ratios far above other options available to the plan, such as institutional share class mutual funds and collective trust funds. And the fifth and the fifth major complaint in this case is that the fiduciaries authorized numerous actively managed funds with 
much higher fees compared to index funds, which resulted in significant underperformance against lower-cost, higher-performing alternatives that were readily available and appropriate. Well, the Rollins case strongly suggests the wisdom in a periodic independent audit of an IPS that's used by a plan's fiduciaries to guide their their decision-making. But the question is, what does an IPS look an IPS audit look to accomplish? Well, first, let's review what a risk consultant who conducts IPS audits uses as a template for the examination. As a starting point, an examiner will assume that the IPS provides a map that charts a pathway to the continuing success of a company-sponsored defined contribution or a defined benefit plan. It should frame how the fiduciaries undertake uh, undertake their due diligence on behalf of plan participants. It should also guide the plan sponsor both in its fiduciary duty and its monitoring of third-party service providers. The contents of an IPS should lay out a procedure for making and implementing investment decisions. Uh, the process should clearly define a communication protocol embracing the plan's advisor or any other party like a record keeper that would help implement the policy. In the context of a defined benefit plan, the procedures should stipulate liquidity requirements and applicable plan administration components, such as whether the plan is closed to new participants or additional accruals. In the context of a 401k or a 403b plan, the IPS requires consideration of, among other things, planned demographic information, including age and income of the population, design features such as automatic enrollment, and the investment sophistication of planned participants. In both cases, investment policy development requires the named fiduciary to consider the types of investments it deems prudent and those that it may want to restrict. By setting forth criteria involved in the selection and monitoring of plan investments and periods for assessing investment performance, an IPS, if it's adhered to, can promote consistent plan investment decision-making under objective factors. Well, here's an example of that. An IPS generally provides the asset classes that the plan's investments should represent. An IPS also includes quantitative and qualitative factors when selecting, monitoring, and terminating investment funds or investment managers. In addition to promoting consistent plan investment decision-making, establishing the selection and monitoring criteria involved in plan investments and the applicable periods for assessing investment performance, Adherence to an IPS also helps to demonstrate the existence of prudent fiduciary procedures. Now, ERISA doesn't require 2020 investment headsight, and lousy investment outcomes are still generally protected under ERISA if they result from a careful decision-making process. As a result, laying out the prudent plan investment decision-making approach has independent value. It has risk management value. Now, on a related note, an IPS also creates a roadmap for documenting the ongoing monitoring of plan investments required by the plan fiduciaries. Quarterly investment reporting typically keys off the investment criteria listed in the IPS. Finally, 
An IPS can socialize new investment committee members to their duties as they rotate onto, an, onto a committee. And that may bridge the gaps that sudden changes to a fiduciary committee may otherwise cause. And in this sense, an IPS can help preserve the institutional memory of a plan's investment objectives, strategies, and processes. Well, let's shift our attention now to how an IPS audit actually goes forward. Now, the examination of an IPS is fundament fundamentally a process audit. It's not to be confused with a financial audit, which certified public accountants must conduct for ERISA plans that exceed specific participant counts. An IPS audit is concerned with the planned fiduciary's conformance to the IPS's provisions. A process audit examines results to determine whether the activities, the resources, and the behaviors that cause the outcomes uh, are carried out efficiently and effectively. So an IPS audit focuses on some specific provisions, and I thought I would go ahead and just give you seven of them uh, today. The first of the seven key provisions in an IPS audit include attention to the roles, responsibilities, and standards of care given to an ERISA plan. So an IPS should contain the identities of everyone involved in, in the investment program by title and responsibility. Standards of care should include language on prudence. That is, it's not a bad idea to re reproduce the prudent person rule, as it's called in ERISA, in the IPS. The IPS should contain the due diligence, ethics and conflicts of interest, delegation authority and knowledge and qualifications rules. The second key provision that's contained in an examination of an IPS is the attention to the what I'll call suitable and authorized investments. Guidelines on selecting investment types, investment advisors and defined contribution plans, and interest rate risk, maturities, and credit quality along with any collateralization requirements for defined benefit plans should be spelled out. The third key ingredient that is included as part of a, an IPS audit has to do with investment diversification. The approach to investment diversification requires the description of the method used to create a mix of assets that will achieve and maintain the plan's investment objectives. Number four, safekeeping, custody, and internal controls should also be treated with guidelines to enhance the separation of duties and reduce the risk of fraud within those activities. The fifth key ingredient in an IPS audit includes uh, authorization of financial institutions, uh, depositories, and broker-dealers. There should be a procedure that defines how the fiduciaries select financial institutions, broker-dealers, depositories that will provide the primary services necessary for executing the investment program. Six, the IPS should document one or more appropriate benchmarks used to measure and compare the portfolio in order to maintain a running account of risk and performance standards for each of the investment options. And then finally, what I'll call reporting and disclosure standards. Uh, this would define the frequency of reporting to the governing body, whether that's an investment committee, a retirement plan committee, a benefits committee, or the board of directors of the institution. Now, the auditor in an IPS audit is going to opine on the strength 
and thoroughness of the evidence provided by the plan's fiduciaries to demonstrate their conformance to all of the IPS's rules. IPS audits can expose some potentially harmful truths and cause problems to what could have always been an otherwise smooth status quo. So why do ERISA plan sponsors then commission audits in the face of possible unfavorable results? Well, many enterprises willingly undergo IPS audits because the benefits outweigh the costs and risks. And there can be many benefits depending on the individual audit. I think the most valuable benefit is transparency and the assurance of effective plan governance. Those at the top of an organization's management team often can't be fully in the know and subsequent control if they don't fully understand the nature of their plan's processes. Full awareness is extremely valuable to the extent that it can allow corporate management to steer the plan clear of dangerous, illegal, unethical, or otherwise unsustainable practices. IPS audits also benefit understanding when and how to use specific methods. Uh, uh, perhaps fiduciary committee method, uh, methods are perfect in their design and how they drive oversight of a plan's investment portfolio, but the timing or frequency of those processes might somehow be inefficient or flawed. IPS audits can be immeasurably valuable in discovering these types of issues and subsequently fixing them. Well, in addition to these great benefits, IPS audits often reveal better ways forward moving into the future for a plan. Now, now an example of that is dealing with a trend requiring investment options to align with environmental, social, and governance, or ESG factors. As retirement and pension plan sponsors look to a better risk management future, IPS audits can genuinely point the way. They can also show which approaches to continue, just as they are, instead of simply pointing out what to change. Roland Chris conducts IPS audits for all sizes and types of ERISA qualified plans in every primary industry sector. And by email, you ask, may ask me for more information about this topic, and that email address is excellentfiduciary, all one word, at rolandchris.com. Well, thank you for joining me. Go to our website for more topics about the role and duties of fiduciaries who serve employee benefit plans qualified under ERISA. Join us next time, and until then, have a great day.